0: Okay, thumbs are up, and here we go. September 23rd, 2018, lecture discussion number 37 on the book of Joel, I hope. I may be wrong, I always am. Okay, most of the time with regard to the numbering system here. And we're going to continue this issue of the grave clothes of Christ. And quite a few of you have asked me in the interim between this week and last week uh, questions about the grave, grave clothing, grave clothes. And that's always a good sign when that happens. It's evidence that my fiendish plans are beginning to fester, I guess. Maybe that would be the right term. Begun to bear vegetables, whatever metaphor you find appropriate. Uh, As a highly trained religious professional, the aim is for... Um is to turn the ugly duckling to the into blossom into a beautiful swan as has been brought up recently. Unfortunately, and of course the ugly duckling in this case, and you're wondering, is a metaphor for my fiendish plan. Unfortunately, ugly ducklings become ugly ducks most of the time. Okay, all the time. Note Genesis one twenty one, one twenty five. The established order, after its own kind. Let us be serious here for a second. Genesis 121 125 is being destroyed by academia. By destroyed, I don't mean they're affecting it at all. What they're doing is affecting those who believe it. As we discussed a few weeks ago, the younger generation now thinks that science has uh, rendered Genesis 121 and 125 completely uh has has refuted it totally. The insisted contrary view of the evolutionary media has not affected it, though they think they have. It's unalterable. A duck is going to produce a duck. And the protestations, though they shout them at decibel levels exceeding our human tolerance, that does not overcome the laws of biogenesis. Shouting is obfuscation. It's sub, subterfuge. It's masking. It's not a coherent thought. It's not an argument. When you begin to look at what atheistic evolutionary philosophy has done, it has ascended on the on, by shouting logical fallacies, and most of it is circular reasoning. What that is is the conclusion is a repeating of the premise. I'll give you an example. Evolution is proven because evolution is true. Okay. How do you argue with that? It's a logical failure, and they know it's a logical failure, but they shout it constantly. And it works. It works on people that have no background at all in rational thinking. There's a wonderful, brilliant man, Thomas Sowell. He said the goal of the church, or the goal of, of the academic world, both, is to teach people how to think, not what to think. He's absolutely right. Um, unfortunately, he is at the end of his life. He is a true example of genius, in my view. We're losing these kinds of men quickly now, and they're being replaced by idiots. That is what we got. We had Thomas Souls aren't coming up. Snow. Did you see the snow falling right there in front of me? It was. You'll think it's insulation, but I'm pretty. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Now I'm going to be in trouble for doing that. Please never do that again. That'll be the first letter I get when I get home. (laughs) But look at me. She said, do it. I did it. Good grief. Yeah, it is my fault. No doubt about that. Well, we're off to an auspicious start today, aren't we? (laughs) Listen, if if they came up to you and said evolution is proven by evolution being true, most I even think today, if it was stated in that manner, no one's going to be convinced by that. Not very many, I hope. Though I know it does work. The method is far more subtle, but it's still circular. It's the assumption of the initial thing is what it's called in logic. Life exists. They will tell you. Okay. Evolution is the singular mechanical system for life. The singular mechanism. They will also say. Therefore, evolution is true. Again, circular reasoning is just a little bit of an adjustment. More commonly, evolution is the only accepted explanation for life. And life is here. Therefore, evolution has to be true. Because we only accept evolution... Nothing else can be accepted as a explanation for life. Therefore, evolution is correct. Again, once again, that is assuming the initial, or the assumption of the initial. And uh, this one, this last one I'll give you, I think, well, I'll keep going, probably. The, this one contains the appeal to authority as well as the appeal to the populace. Evolutionary monism is is nothing if it does not appeal to authority or populace. And I'll give you this example. All scientists, do all scientists, no, all scientists, they will tell you, believe that the mechanism or the explanation for the existence of consciousness, existence of life, is the evolutionary process. Thus, the evolutionary process is true. Now, they've appealed, they said, overwhelmingly, all scientists believe in evolution. That's an, an appeal to authority. I don't care. It doesn't affect the logic. Does that make sense? I could have said it this way. All horses believe in evolution. Doesn't affect the logic. Just because there is a vast amount of people that believe something that's wrong doesn't make it Right. That's a logic fallacy. You must debate based on the reasonings, not on the ma- amount of people you've been able to dis- de- delude into this position. Anthropogenic global warming uses the same tactics, as you know. Human-caused war- warming, they will tell you over and over again, is settled science. That should have been your first clue that that's circular reasoning, or an appeal to the authority, or appeal to the uh, populace. The more people that believe something, the more likely to make it false, not true, frankly. Because we're all suckers today. Just watch TV. They can sell you anything on the Internet now. It's amazing what they're able to do. We are just little uh, waiting to be plucked. Rubes. But to repeat this, human-caused warming is settled science. Nothing is settled science. Uh, As soon as you saw settled science, you knew that we weren't talking about science. Anyone who questions the only approved view is to be subject to criminal prosecution. That is something they're saying now. And some people will write to me and say, that's a straw man argument. Uh, A scientific community is not saying that, but... I am a highly trained religious professional. Have I mentioned that yet? Uh, I have seen them and heard them. The criminalization of climate change skepticism has been proposed. Now, and it's seriously proposed, politically proposed. I take these people seriously when they say things like that. I believe them. That's profoundly ignorant, and profoundly ignorant people scare me. So I take them at their word. They want to criminalize my skepticism. In many federally funded universities, you cannot get a degree in biological, in the biological sciences, unless you take the pledge that evolution is settled science. They won't issue a biological degree to an evolutionary skeptic. Or even to a, a, somebody who believes in substance dualism. Or radical dualism, whichever one you prefer. Which means that we are a two-component creature. We have a spiritual, non-physical component that is eternal. And we have a physical machine that manifests that non-physical, mental, spiritual element. You can't get a biological science degree if you have that view. Many universities, check me out. Or you have to lie, which I recommend. I see some famous coach got in trouble for lying to the media. And I'm going, well, the media lies to me. Why wouldn't it? See, if we lie to the media and the media lies to us, then what will we get from the media? Yeah, we get the truth then, right? I think the plan's brilliant. Never mind, I'm descending We've started off badly and we're getting worse. I just want you to note, as the world descends further into darkness, and we, I hope, are the generation that sees this dissension accelerate, and I believe that we are, as it, as it descends further <coughs> and, excuse me, and faster <coughs> into the blackness of ignorant thinking, expect mankind to seek con- to control the free will of those who will not embrace the atheistic orthodoxy. Here we are back to China. China is gathering information on its citizens at a rate that is unprecedented. And what are they doing with this information? They are actually (coughs) analyzing the loyalty of their subjects. What do you suppose will happen to the unloyal subjects who get a ranking or a numerical value of loyalty that is below the minimum? What will they do? What does communism always do? And they're using U.S. technology to do this. Our technological companies are making a lot of money out of allowing China, teaching China how to control the people of China. <clears throat> as I mentioned in the pregame here, there's non-compliance. If you don't comply in the Chinese system as it has been in the past, it's a death sentence. And this is a rising Chinese persecution of Christians. Read the news. Here it comes. Communism kills those who refuse to submit. The best indication of future behavior is past behavior. Mao murdered millions. Pol Pot, Stalin, hundreds of millions in total. So this is the killing fields of communism. And the ultimate control is murder. For a physical being. That's why Christ says, don't fear those who can kill the body. They think that's the ultimate control because they think they have extinguished you. They have not. He says, fear me. I am the one that can send the soul and the body to destruction. But beware of those who desire to rule over you. That's why you see me rant and rave over churches that are constantly control-based, telling you who to marry, what job you have to have, where you have to go. It's very common in the church today and been very common for the last hundred years. What you must buy. I've had pastors in this city stand up and tell people to sell their motorhomes So that they will come to church on Sunday. That is. Whenever you see that. Just just run from those who desire to control you, to rule over you. Control is a satanic principle. Satan devours those he controls who he enslaves. Christ is the exact opposite of that. Christ seeks to free man from bondage, from death. That's Samson and the gates. Remember, he tore the gates off and took them up the mountain, threw them into a valley, and let the people free. That was a picture of Christ. Those are your two choices. And all of that brings us back to Adam, Lazarus, and the grave clothes of Christ. Freedom is good. This is a country founded on the principle of freedom. And it is a religious principle, and control is evil. There you go. It's as simple as that. But our world is so upside down, Isaiah 5.20. We are witnessing this inversion of reality in a way, I think, that has never been seen before in history. The delusion is now the truth, and the truth is is proclaimed to be the lie. Control is called freedom now, and freedom is called evil. Okay, that sets this up, I hope. Matthew 12, the Pharisees, when they were faced... With the casting out of the blind mute. Remember, we have two mutes. We have the blind mute and we have the deaf mute. When the Pharisees in Matthew 12 faced with the casting out of the demon from the blind mute. What did the the demon do to the blind mute? What did the demon do to the deaf mute? Start paying attention to what, de- what did the demons do to the pigs? What is the ultimate control? Possession is control, isn't it? So backing up. Matthew 12. The Pharisees faced with the casting out of the demon from the blind mute. And the multitude was amazed by this. They they were absolutely amazed. Is this the Messiah? They immediately went from he cast out a demon from the blind mute to this must be the Messiah. They did that because it's inside their culture. Is this the son of David? They said. The Pharisees refused to accept the proof of Christ's Messiahship. But they're the ones who said that if you can cast a demon out of a blind mute, then you're the Messiah. Christ does it. They said, no, you're not the Messiah. And what did they use? The reasoning was to call Christ, ultimately, to to get it to its uh, focus, what did they say to him? They said he was evil. So what did they just do? What is Christ really? Absolute, pure, good. You can't get. He's the only being that has no sin, no evil at all, and they call him evil. So they are calling good evil, and evil therefore has to be what? What's left. So you see this inversion. reciprocation as reciprocal the pharisees refused to accept the proof of christ's Messiahship even though they set the rule and the reasoning that they gave to the people was that christ is actually evil you've been fooled by an evil being they said so this is and this is god himself so they are declaring god himself is evil and that's a very common refrain in our time you see it always god is evil because he allows freedom and freedom has led to sin, but they leave that part out. God is the one who kills everybody with a tornado or a sickness or pick your particular uh, problem. God is evil, they say today. Very common refrain over and over again. And now I want you to recognize it as the Genesis 3 lie of Satan. It is calling that which is pure good evil and that which is evil good. Isaiah 5.20. If God is the author of evil, if I go ahead and concede that to you, and I won't, but if I did, and I won't, well let's say I did, but I won't, then we have no freedom. Do you understand that? If God is the author of evil, then we have no freedom. All we have is control. And you'll find many, many churches that will tell you. Somebody was telling me earlier today, was that you, Sup? Sup was saying that uh, he, he heard a sermon or heard somebody say, that uh God loves some people more than others. Is that how it went? Oh no, yeah, God doesn't love everybody. He loves some people a lot, and then the others he doesn't love at all. Is that how it went? Yep. Yeah. What's that? Uh, yeah. <laughs> yeah, that's calling God, to say I mean oh let me Refresh myself. I don't even know what to say to stuff. Yes, I do know what to say, but I can't say it here because I'm recorded now. I was a whole lot more aggressive when no one knew who I was at all. Hardly anyone knows now. You'd think I'd be aggressive. But I'm trying to be sensitive to the vast internet audience. (sighs) If God is the author of evil, As they say, then we have no freedom, we have no free will. If we have no free component at all, then we have no existence. And we, the angels, the animals, the living souls, do not actually live. What we think is life is actually death, and time is revealing our death. Hopefully that makes sense. I say it to you a lot. But that is the logical progression if you think God is evil. As soon as you say God is evil or you think God is evil, then you are attacking your own existence, your own being. In other words, if we don't have being, we only think we live. Here's what some of you might be thinking. Well, God can be evil and and we can still exist. Well, start thinking that through. If God is evil, can you exist? All you have is an illusion. And we only think that we exist or we only think we live, but our thinking in our life is, again, an illusion waiting to be revealed by time as actually death. And therefore, we are merely automations. And if we're only automations and we don't have freedom at all, no freedom at all, then what is God? Okay? For true life, for true existence, for to be... Why would God create a fake belief in us that we have true life? If he's done that, then he's lied. If he's lied, then he's what? And we've been fooled, only waiting to be extinguished, and we don't even know it. Who would do that? An evil person. What is God? Absolute good. It has to be absolute good for us to have true existence. For true life, for true existence to be the reality, God must be omnibenevolent, pure, holy, perfect in always absolute infinite goodness. Or there is nothing. And all of this, and that's right, leads to what? Who said what? I couldn't I couldn't hear you. Grave clothes is correct. Were you the only one that said grave clothes? Everything that I have just done on the first four pages gets you to grave clothes. Isn't that exciting? Were you the only one that said it? Anybody else think it? You can get credit for thinking. Okay. Oh, okay. Good. Okay. That's good enough, as you know. But it's not just grave clothes. What else is it? Everything that I just went over also takes us to the Lord's Prayer. In case you think, I forgot about the sixth petition. Last Sunday, I think it was last Sunday. I'm not positive anymore. Things are getting a little shaky. I've been doing some really weird things. I don't know what to say. I think it all comes from roofing. Daniel tried to kill me, roofing. And try to push me off, just to let me want to get so tired of roofing that I just walk off on my own. That's how it was. that was his plan. But I was so tired and I when I get tired, my goodness, I do some strange, strange things, which is why I drink as much aspartame as possible and as much Worcestershire as I can to to uh, mitigate, attenuate that process. What's that? I hope you're right. Worcestershire sauce is good. She's absolute pure good? No. No. Okay, just wondering. (laughs) Last Sunday, I think, I began to make the argument that the sixth petition, lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. I said, whoops. I said that was, and of course I'm right, Genesis 3. That petition is going right to Genesis 3, because that is the evil one and the woman. And so that petition is in the context of Genesis 3. And you have to, you don't have to, but you should always recognize that. That's why when the Pope wants to get rid of this, he's trying to manufacture a reason to avoid Genesis 3. If he even knows it, I doubt he even knows it. Bless his heart. That's. But I think that's what he's uh, either overtly or covertly or unawares. Either way, he's attacking Genesis 3, the evil one and the woman. That's the first submission of a human being. Notice how I said that. That is the first submission of a human being to the satanic lie. Therefore, the temptation, lead us not into temptation, deliver us from the evil one. The temptation specifically must refer in the believing of the deception of the lie of Satan. And the woman believed Satan, and the woman was deceived and believed the lie. So, as I always try to do, the central question must be reestablished. What are the elements of the satanic lie? Or, or, if you will, how big a lie is the lie? How far does the lie go in every direction? Which aspect of the lie, if you prefer this, is the most seminal? Or, you want to think of it this way, the most fatal, the most destructive? You can pick your own adjective. The point is, yea, a point of the attributes of the lie of the evil one select out the one you... You believe is the cornerstone, is the foundational facet of of Satan's lie. And here's a few choices that I'll give you. Never say, I don't give you the freedom to choose. I do. I want you to make your own decisions, don't I? So that when you're standing in the courtroom of the great white throne and you're declared to be... um, Less than acceptable. That doesn't mean you lost your salvation. You just get a bigger beating than, say, me. You won't be able to look at God and say, he made me think this. I am not your attorney. You're on your own up there. I wouldn't stand next to me for anything. Or anybody else for that matter. Here's your choices. A facet of the lie of Satan. An aspect of it. God is the source of evil, God is evil, God lies. That's one of the facets of it. Here's another. There are no living beings. You should recognize this. No life. Only fake life. Existence is an illusion. We are physical machines only, only physical machines. A derivative of that would be that there is no free thought. I hope you know how this is related. Not a single free thought. Does anyone in this room, there's not very many, it's a sunny day. Does anyone ever think that you have not even one free thought? Well, that's part of the lie of Satan, but that's very common in the church. They cannot reconcile omniscience with freedom. They think they're contradictory. So, all free thought in, the, in, this, in this kind of process that they believe, and I shouldn't say who they are, okay, I won't. You can find them. All we have is a mirage, a hallucination. Thought is a mirage, it's a vapor. It can be, it's destroyable, contrary to physics. It's fabrication. Number four would be that time is not created. God is subject to time, therefore. The purpose of time, again, is to reveal death. You'll see that a lot. The only reason God created time was to reveal to you your own death. There is no accountability. There is no judgment. The reason there is no judgment is because God is evil. And therefore, there can be no judgment. And also the reason there is no judgment is there's no solution to sin. Number seven, the act of sin reveals the truth of God. In other words, God is revealed as being evil because... By our acts of sin. There are truths about God that if you know them, that would support all these affirmation, aforementioned uh, suppositions. So sin is revelatory as to the evil of God. Now, that's just seven that I'm giving you. There's a lot more than that. But as uh, custom, the list is never comprehensive here. So you feel free to construct your own shallow list. This is my cursory list. I'll take it and go run with it, but you can get add as much as you want to it and you will find many more. But let's just grant me the power to control you today with the holy magic race maker here. Which one of those is the worst one? Which is the linchpin? Which would you choose that Eve believed? That's the lie of Satan. Can everybody see it in case I'm, I'm I'll put it over here for the people on the Internet? And I'll put it back. How many of those do you think Eve believed? Is there any on that list that she didn't believe? Now, let's go to the angelic host, because the lie is repeated, right? The tr- by the abundance of your traffic, Ezekiel 28:16. Satan goes to his inner circle first and then all throughout the angelic host. How many of the fallen angels believed all seven of those? And there's more. Which one is the one they first believed, if you will? Which one is the most fatal, the most destructive? The fundamental. So hopefully with that behind us for now... You remember from last week, Mark 9, 17 through 29. Now I have to read that again because it's it's hard to remember it, but I'm trying. So here we go, Mark 9:17. I'll go really fast because I think everyone was here. So here we go. Then one of the crowd answers and said, Teacher, I brought to you my son who has a mute spirit. Oh my, here we go again. And he says that, and everybody is following behind him. And whoever it sees, and whenever it seizes him, it throws it down, he foams at the mouth, gnashes his teeth, and becomes rigid. So there is a controlling demonic being inside this boy. Pay attention to what it does. And a lot of people will say, well, it's epilepsy. He's carrying an epileptic. <sighs> so I spoke to your disciples and they they could not cast it out, but and, and that they should cast it out, but they could not. And Christ answered him and said, oh, faithless generation. He's not, he's not speaking to the boy. All of a sudden he's speaking to the generation. Now, who's the generation here? Not speaking to the man. There's a big crowd here following this man who is bringing this boy because he has a mute demon possessed condition to somebody who's already done this, if the sequence is correct. The chronology. And he answered the father and said, Oh, faithless generation. How long shall I be with you? How long shall I bear with you? Bring him to me. Then they brought him to him, and when he saw him, immediately the spirit convulsed him, the boy, and he fell to the ground and wallowed foaming at the mouth. So he asked his father, how long has this been happening to him? This is omniscient outside of time, God. So who's he asking it for? And the father said, from childhood, and often he has thrown him into the fire and into the water to destroy him. Notice how the father is talking about the demon as if it is a male demon. And as as if it actually exists. And what its motive is. The motive of of the fallen angel who believed one of these seven, if not all of them, and more. But if you can do anything, he says, have compassion on us and help us. Jesus said to him, if you can believe, all things are possible to him who believes. Now, the believe, if you can, all things are possible. And the believe isn't there in verse 23 in most texts, in the oldest texts. The father says, but if you can, and, he, and Christ says back to him, if you can. So you see this repeating, this juxtapositioning of if you can. Immediately the father of the child cried out and said with tears, I believe, help my unbelief. When Jesus saw that the people came running, now the people were running. How many? A lot. Why are they coming? Because it's a mute. He rebuked the unclean spirit, saying to a deaf and dumb spirit, doesn't say its name, doesn't have to, already knows his name. I command you to come out of him and enter him no more. Then the spirit cried out, convulsed the boy greatly, and came out of him, and he became as one dead. So I've got a dead boy, not a problem. But it's important that you know that he's dead. I'll explain why in a minute. But Jesus took him by the hand and lifted him up and he arose from the dead. And when he had come to the house, his disciples asked him privately, why could we not cast it out? Well, when you cast this kind out, what happens? And I got to resurrect. And Jesus Christ said, because it's one of this kind. And that's the, what kind is that? We have a mute exorcism. That is why. And the major pieces, in my opinion, of this incident, uh, as I said many times, is the deaf and mute. Note that this is a deaf and mute as opposed to a blind and mute. I think the blind and mute came before the deaf and mute. If there is a difference we'll discuss that in the weeks to come the boy is dead i think that is critical to understand and subsequently resurrected from the death from death how much time between the death and the resurrection do you think i'm going to tell you a couple hours could be are you thinking a couple of seconds how much time what was the interval of time between the death of the boy and the resurrection of the boy? I think I can tell you what that time was. And obviously, the, this kind is crucial. Ordered out of the boy without the Jewish exorcism protocol of extracting the name of the demon. Now he's done it twice. Two times he has exercised a mute spirit. The casting out of an unnamed demon from a mute, a deaf mute in this case, a blind mute in the other case. This is a messianic trait. Only the Messiah, only the son of David, only the Messiah can do this. And what do you suppose the resurrected boy said after he was resurrected? Because he can talk now. The blind guy said stuff. He had things to say. What did he say? Is there no record? I'm just wondering. I suspect he said something. The father cries out to Christ, Lord, I believe, help my unbelief. On the surface, that's a contradiction, isn't it? I believe, but I don't believe. I could have, written, I could have said it that way. What did the father not believe? First he says, Lord, I believe, but then he recants. Help! I don't really believe. Look will get you list. It'd be the inverse of that list, wouldn't it? This is the evil list. There's got to be a good list that it corresponds to the evil list. What on the good list did he not believe? I don't believe. Help me believe. And prior to this, the Father says to the living God, if you can do anything, really, have compassion on us, love us. That's why I brought up Dave's guy that said God doesn't really love everybody. That's what he's asking him to do. If you can do anything, love us, help us. A couple of things to consider. But if you can do anything, love, help us. Obviously, the father had no idea who he was talking to, who Christ truly is. He had no idea at all. And there are implications, great implications in his statements to Jesus here. I would submit that the level of unbelief in the father, where do you think it is right there after saying something like that? Has he got a, where is he? I think it's fairly high, isn't it? But with that, the Father cries out with, help my unbelief. And that is doctrinally perfect. Whoa. There are now two spots in the carpet that no one will know how they got there. Right. Oh, that's right. There's only two and 50. Somebody spilled a Diet Coke here. It wasn't me. You decide. He's clumsy and old. Okay. I win. You're missing a finger. Yeah. I mean, he's in big trouble. But this doctrinally perfect thing that he says, the father cries out with help, my unbelief to God himself and Jesus Christ responds. And the crowd comes running because that was a wonderful answer. And God is consistent. He waits for these wonderful answers. He doesn't need the man to believe anything. Your belief doesn't matter with regard to the miracles of God. He doesn't need your belief. It's nice for you. But for him, it is completely inconsequential. Do you understand that? These people that tell you you didn't pray hard enough are idiots. And run from them, throw chairs. They're trying to control you with that. I always ask them the same questions. How many push-ups does it take to have enough faith? And They don't recognize that I'm slightly mocking them with a really good attitude. Maybe not. How hard, how much physical energy must I have in order to get something? This is God you're talking to. If you can do anything. But then finally he says, help my unbelief. Because something is wrong with his belief system. What part of the lie of Satan does he have? Which one do you think it is? He even tells you, he says, love me. Love us please love us please be absolutely good total pure goodness and Christ responds and the multitude the language is is that they gather quickly as soon as Christ makes this indication that he is going to cast out the deaf mute we have a we have an inmate that has escaped He's bringing gifts in order to try to maintain his status inside the auditorium. Once again, I am responsible in some way. (laughs) Where is the grandmother? I don't see her. (laughs) She's hiding. (laughs) You're really bad at this grandmother stuff. Have you noticed that? I mean, I do, I'm doing great. I, it's not my fault. <laughs> okay. The multitude gathers quickly. They clearly, the multitude, I mean, they're common. Because here we go again. Here we got another one of these. We got a blind and mute first. Now we've got a deaf and mute. We're going to do it again in case you didn't see it the first time. Pharisees rejected it on the basis that God is evil. Now here we go again. A deaf mute exorcism, another mess- messianic sign, the sign of the Son of David, and the crowd is rushing to see it. No one wants to miss it this time. Matthew 12 was a blind mute exorcism. This is a deaf mute exorcism, and the crowd knew the meaning of it. And remember, Matthew 12:23, the multitudes were amazed and said, "Could this be the Son of David?" Because he did this. The Pharisees answered, "No. Christ is evil. God is evil. Let's evaluate that. Christ is the Lord God Almighty, the creator of all things. And the Pharisees declare him, God in the flesh, to be evil. We should not be surprised. It's on the list. But in case you hadn't noticed, the Pharisees, Matthew twelve thirty-eight, they demand another sign. They said, don't give us this one. We've got to have another one. What does he give them? He said, no sign will be given to this evil generation, the generation of the Pharisees. He calls that that generation evil. They are representing the nation of Israel. They're the evil generation. And he said, nothing will be given to you. And then he connects this to what? Yes, that's right, to the sign of Jonah. You're not going to get this. I'm going to give this to the people, not to the generation. I'm going to give you The sign of Jonah. So there you go. That's how that fits together. Jesus, God says, an evil and and adulterous generation seeks after a sign, and no sign shall be given to it to to the evil and adulterous generation except the sign of the prophet Jonah. So the sign of the exorcism of a demon-possessed blind mute and a demon-possessed deaf mute is deeply, intrinsically attached to the sign of Jonah. Now, you might want to know how that's the case, and if only we had time. How much time do I have? Nine minutes. So we don't have time. There you go. Jesus, for today, Jesus just reaches down and lifts the boy up by the hand. Has he done that before? Yes, he has. That's Mark five thirty-five forty-three. That's the daughter, right? The dead daughter. So I got a dead boy. He lifts by the hand, and a dead daughter. He lifts by the hand. Both of them are resurrected. How much time? How much time for the daughter? How much time for the boy, the son? In both instances, Jesus resurrects from the dead a dead child. He put them together by lifting them up by the hand. He reproduced the same. System, if you want to think of it that way. Mannerism. It's not an accident. Who is this? Absolute, infinite God. In the latter, he couples it with the Davidic sign of the deaf mute. And the people receive the sign of the blind mute exorcism and the deaf mute exorcism. Not the Pharisees. And it tells you the people did because they are amazed and many, many of that multitude believe that this is the Messiah. The Pharisees, they get the sign of Jonah, which brings us to Adam, Lazarus, Christ, and the grave clothes now. Now, gird yourself. This is a lengthy journey. When you start talking about Adam, Lazarus, and Christ and grave clothes, blah. It's a 15-round heavyweight fight. You're going to take a lot of punches. You're going to be knocked down trying to get through this. Think about climbing up a steep hill of sand. Sometimes you're going to think, Woo, I'm doing really good. I'm, I'm halfway up the hill. What's going to happen to you? Down you go, and you're going to be covered with sand. Same thing in the fight. The left hook's coming out of nowhere. I love these metaphors. And you're going to go down, because you won't see it on the canvas covered in sand. That's you when you're talking about Adam. Lazarus and the grave clothes. This is not a piece of pie, easy as cake. Nothing is in the Bible, but boy, here we go. Adam and Christ, the first Adam and the last Adam. That's what Christ calls himself, the last Adam, the second Adam, the first and the second, the final Adam. So only been two federal heads of humanity. One was Adam, the other is Christ. He is the federal head now. He's replaced Adam. Adam is a not deceived type of Christ. I can't say that enough. That's 1 Timothy 2.14 and Romans 5.14. Not deceived type of Christ. He is not deceived type of Christ. Two extraordinary attributes that make Adam stand alone in Scripture. Of all, of no other is it said that they have been not deceived by the evil one, which is the sixth position, petition of the Lord's Prayer. And a type of Christ. He is not deceived by the evil one, and he is a type of Christ. And when you study Adam, and we're doing it again, you got to, you must, you must reflect and account for those two statements of Scripture, because they separate him out, and bang, he's honored. It's amazing. The point being, yea, another point. If you respect the grave clothes, the clothes of death, I'm sorry, I'm tired. When you begin to look about at, at, at the grave close of the close of death, and, and pay attention to it with the, with what it deserves, and knowing that Adam and Christ are just stuck because Christ chooses to do that. So he has he's the one that makes Adam a type of him, right? Does it make, but he pulls out the truth of Adam and attaches it to himself. Christ chose to put on clothes of death. Why did he do it? Therefore, we've got to look at Adam to do the same thing. They're going to do the same thing. That's why I submitted last week that the fig covering is Adam's death clothes. It can't be the animal covering, the skin covering, the blood covering. That's a covering of life. That's a type of Christ, or a symbol of Christ's blood. So Christ puts on grave, grave clothes. He makes sure that Nicodemus does this. Joseph of Arimathea. He's not going to have any decay at all. Psalm 16:10. No decay. He still wants grave clothes. Why? The only reason it can be is that Adam did it makes some sense I hope so where is the death clothes of Adam and I submit that it's the fig covering as you know I've done that many many years the fig garment must be death clothes something that Adam chose knowingly and put on himself just like Christ knowingly did it and put it on had it put on him so far so good round one you're still standing no sand right now comes the most obvious of the obvious questions if the grave clothes of Christ, refer to the fig covering of Adam, and therefore to the removal of the fig covering of the fig garment. Who takes the fig garment off of Adam? Christ does. He not only, Adam chose to put it on, Christ chooses to take it off, based on something that Adam says. We've covered that many times. Genesis 3:21. he replaces the fig garments with tunics of blood. What's the purpose then? What are the mysteries or the purposes of all of that? Now add in Lazarus. Whoa, here comes the punches. Adam, we can kind of work it out a little bit, but now we got Lazarus in the middle of this. What does he do when does it, when does he raise Lazarus just for fun? Do you know, chronologically? He raises him right here. After the casting out of the mute, after those two signs, two Davidic signs, then he gives, resurrects Lazarus. What's that make Lazarus? This was for who? I'll help you. Not the evil generation. But then he says, I'm going to give to the Pharisees, the evil, adulterous generation, I'm going to give you what? Signs of Jonah. i got two Davidic signs. How many signs of Jonah do you think we're going to end up with? Maybe I have more than two Davidic signs. Can you think of another Davidic sign with this mute in it? Start looking, because that's going to tell you how many signs of Jonah you got. I know how many signs of Jonah that we have. We have Three. Lazarus is a sign of Jonah. Get into that next week. It's obvious that Lazarus' burial and resurrection coincides with Christ. It's also it's given to the Pharisees as a piece of a segment. It's the first of the three signs of Jonah given to Israel. And they reject it. And this leads to a tremendous list. It's called the Lazarus list. And I have no time, but it goes on forever. It goes on for two pages. I'm gonna just read it, just so you get some of it. Lazarus is dead for four days. Why? He's supposed to be three days, but he's not three days. He's four days. What can the four mean? And whatever the four means, then that means why the three? If I can figure out the four, I can figure out the three. Does that make sense? A day is what? You learn one thing, dummy. In fact, it says that. It says, if you can learn one thing, dumb Steve, I never forgot it. I even wrote Steve in there. Learn this one thing. What is it? A day is what? A thousand years. How does that fit? I got four and I got three. How many got? Oh, the math is so hard in this kinds of thing. We'll get into that, but he's in the tomb four days. Christ is in the tomb three days. That does, just... okay, it starts to make sense. Women around Mary and Martha. There are women around Mary and Martha. And what are the women doing when they're around Mary and Martha with regard to Lazarus? They are weeping over the death. Uh, and that is what? That is unbelief, isn't it? Because Christ is standing right there, eventually. And he's groaning. He groans over the unbelief of these, of these women and these people. God weeps. It even says so. Jesus wept here. And he says this question. He asks this question. Where have you laid him? Well, he knows he's omniscient God. So why does he ask that question? So let's go over it. Dead four days, women around Mary and Martha, weeping over the death of women. There's unbelief everywhere. God groans over the unbelief. God weeps. Then he asks, where have you laid him? Goes there. There's a stone there. Does that sound familiar? There's a cave with a stone in front of it. There's a stench. Four days dead, says it again. It's the second four days. If you would believe, he says. That's exactly what he says to the Father. In Mark nine isn't it? And then he says, he prays. God praying to God. And he actually says, I'm praying aloud, so you'll hear me. I said this so that you'll believe. So you'll know who I really am. Because it's impossible for God not to hear himself. It's a triunity. I've got all of that, which means I don't understand it. And anybody that says that we can comprehend the triune Godhead is a, a fraud. Run for your lives. Literally. And he says that I said this so that the people would believe. And then in a loud voice... He calls out Lazarus, and that is a picture of the of the resurrection of the believers. He calls us out with his loud voice, and Lazarus is bound hand and foot, and he has grave clothes, and he has a face cloth, and Christ says to loose him and let him go, and these guys had to come that probably wrapped him and get rid of it, and many of the and let it all fall to the ground, and many of the Jews who came to Mary now believe. And the Sanhedrin Council has to convene because they had to deal with this. We got deaf and mute, deaf and mute, or blind and mute. We got Davidic signs. Now we got the sign of Jonah. We're in trouble. We have to have the Sanhedrin here. And they all get together, okay? So that all happens. They rejected the Davidic sign, the blind mute. Now they reject the first of the sign of Jonah. Let's back up the face cloth. What happened to the face cloth of Lazarus? If I could figure out what happened to the face cloth of Lazarus, I might be able to what? Tie it to the face cloth of Christ, obviously. What happened to that face cloth? What do you think happened to it? Insignificant? What did Christ do with that face cloth? Because as soon as John saw the face cloth of Christ... And how it was folded and how it was separated, he believed in the resurrection. How did he do that? Seen it before? I'm always interested in these kinds of little details, as you know. Quickly, you can find the similar, if not the exact same thing. A stone is rolled away at the resurrection of Christ. It's in a cave. Grave closed, Christ is bound hand and foot, even though it never decay. He has a face claw. Where'd they get the face claw? Just, Just ask him. Three days and three nights in the tomb. That's a sign of Jonah. Women, once again, the women all gather up. And what are they doing? They're weeping. Not good. Bunch of weeping women over death. Unbelief. They actually go to the... They got their, they got Mark sixteen three. They've got their spices and their grave clothes stuff. They're going to the tomb of Christ, and what is the question they ask themselves? We're probably here. We're going to get there, but who's going to roll that stone away? They had, no, they had complete, utter unbelief, and then they have belief. You see that in Thomas and Mary. So there's great differences between Christ, but a disparity, but there's also a tremendous amount of things that are alike. The angel of the Lord rolls away the stone. That is Christ himself because it describes him. His face is like lightning. That's Revelation 1, 12 through 17. That's Matthew 28, 2 through 3. Describes him lightning. So there he is. There's Daniel 7. He rolls his own stone away. Who laid Christ in the tomb? Joseph and, and uh, Nicodemus. What's it like to grab a hold of a non-corrupted body? And It's an extraordinary event. I have two angels also that stand at the head of Christ and the foot of Christ. There's no stench. There's no body. The grave clothes are empty and the face cloth is folded. And I'm going to tell you that that's the same as Lazarus. And John figured it out, bang. I've seen this before. He is not where he was laid, Matthew 28, 6. He asked them, where have you laid Lazarus? And he is not where he was laid. And two angels, as I said, one stands at the head, one stands at the foot. Why do you suppose they do that? What are they trying to say? We have head and foot, bound head and foot, standing head and foot. Next week, because I am out of time, we will put all of that together for you. Maybe. I did pretty good today. You got to admit, huh? Yeah, you were suspicious. Well, skeptical, I would say. But how did I do? Yeah. Oh, she never mind. I can't say that. I want to turn around and show everybody what you just did. Yeah, oh, that's hilarious. If we had put that on the internet, we'd be all shut down. Oh my gosh, the world is crazy. We'll be crazier to become yet.